You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. This morning, we are uh, two weeks now away from wrapping up our sermon series we've been walking through this summer called Doctrine and Emotion. It's been a sermon series through the Psalms where we've been seeking through the words and the truth of the Psalms to give voice to our experiences, to give voice to our emotions. And this week, after walking through over the last several weeks, emotions like joy and confidence, sorrow and fear, we come really to the last of the specific emotions we're going to walk through. Next week, we'll kind of do a a summation of the sermon series. And so, Today is our last major specific emotion or experience that we're going to walk through. And it's probably the one I've saved for last because if I'm being honest, it's the one I knew I would wrestle with the most. It's the emotion and experience of despair. So as we lean into this, let me set the stage for you by telling you a quick story about a time where I felt utterly inadequate in school. And so uh, my kids like to joke, uh, like we count the number of years that I spent in school. And for a long time, I just think that's what I was. Like if you ask me what my career was, I was a professional student. I know some of you guys are here like, yeah, I know what that feels like. Um, I was fairly good at being a professional student. And that's, I think, why I kept at it. Plus, I didn't want to, you know, do things like work hard and have a career. Uh, but anyways, in, uh, in high school, when my days of uh, being a pretty good student were taking off, uh, I encountered a bit of a roadblock in my first year of high school, and that roadblock was called freshman biology. I had a, a, a teacher who I think to this day at Muscoota Community High School is still revered for his, uh, we'll say, gruffness and toughness. And so here I was in freshman biology, and, and it was the first kind of couple months of school and class, and, uh, and he said, hey, starting next week, we are going to begin dissecting things. And I remember thinking, right, because I'm like a freshman boy, and I'm like, yes, this will be great. But we started with dissecting an earthworm. Now, I don't know if you've ever dissected an earthworm. If not, kids don't immediately go home and find one in the yard and begin it. Uh, but when you begin to dissect an earthworm, to my eyes, it looks like you're dissecting jello. Right? Everything just seems to be a mix of goo. But as we begin to dissect this earthworm, our biology teacher is standing up front with a slide, not a PowerPoint, because I went to school before the days of PowerPoint. And he's pointing at all of these things and naming out specific body parts that we are supposed to be finding in this mashed up, cut open earthworm. But I didn't see body parts, I didn't see organs, I didn't see delineation of of anything. What I saw was a mess. And it was gross, and I could make no sense of what I was looking at. That's how despair oftentimes feels to me. It feels like a mess. It feels gross. It feels like I can't make 
any sense of what I'm actually looking at. Some emotions are pretty cut and dry, right? We can look at them and we can understand what's actually going on. We can see the pieces and parts and how they work together, but in an emotion like despair, it just feels overwhelming. It feels like everything tends to bleed together. We know that somehow there is structure. Somehow there are pieces and parts to what we're experiencing, but oftentimes it just feels overwhelming. I don't know if you've experienced that before. I don't know if that's a part of your story. I don't know if you're walking in here as kind of a glass half full person or a glass half empty person. I'll just be honest and vulnerable with you and tell you that our family struggles with mental health. Uh, We tend to be glass half empty people. We tend to be people that feel like sometimes the glass is shattered on the floor type of people. We felt what it feels like to to, to wrestle with anxiety and depression and quite honestly, despair. Now here's why I tell you that. I tell you that because we are going to be walking in a moment through this emotion, this experience of despair. And I'll just tell you this, if you've not experienced despair in your life, it's not because it's not for you. Right? You can't read through Scripture without encountering people regularly, including the people of God who feel the depths of despair. If you haven't experienced it, it's because we, as a culture and as a people, have centered our life around doing everything possible to protect ourselves and numb ourselves away from strong emotions and feelings like despair. Let me give you a definition of despair so we're on the same page. If you look up despair in uh, Webster's or the Oxford Dictionary, you'll, you'll see something like this. Despair is the complete loss or absence of hope. The, the word despair is used throughout Scripture, and it's the Hebrew word yaosh. And the root of that word, yaosh, means to desist, to stop, right? It, it, it means to end. Literally, the biblical definition of despair means for hope to cease and desist, for hope to come to its very end. That's a big emotion. That's a harrowing experience to walk through a place where it feels like hope has ceased and desisted. Now, I'm your pastor, and what that means is that much of my life is spent before the Lord on behalf of me, my family, and you pleading with the Lord to give us hope in Christ Jesus, to help us to taste and see of the goodness of the Lord, 
to help us to see and know the finished work of Christ Jesus on our behalf and to take it in that we might truly believe and walk in it. But here's where I came to as I wrestled in preparation of this sermon, this emotion, this experience, and it's this. I really want this morning to look you in the eyes and to tell you that if you just hear my words and if you just follow through with what I'm going to say, that despair will go away or that despair will never come again. But I don't have the power to do that. I don't have the power, if you find yourself in despair right now, to restore hope to you. And if despair comes into your life, I don't have the power to guard you from it. And so if I don't have the power to guard you from despair, and if I don't have the power to fix your despair, here's what my hope is for us today. It's that you and I, as we look at the very words of the Lord, as we look at the people of God walking through despair, that you and I will come to understand what is going on in the midst of our despair. At least the Lord will give us fresh eyes to see where our heart and our soul is. And that as we see what's going on, maybe, just maybe by the very gracious heart of our Heavenly Father, He would give us a new hope. A new hope that would overcome the hope that we have lost. So this morning we're going to look at Psalm 22. We're going to look at despair. And here's what I'm asking the Lord. That He would show us three characteristics of despair that would help us to get our arms around this experience and that might bring us comfort in the midst of it. Here's what we're going to look at this morning. The complexity of despair, the direction of despair, and the context of despair. Again, the complexity, the direction, and the context. Let's start with the complexity of despair. When we come at an emotion, especially a big emotion or what we might call a negative emotion, Right now, I hope that through this sermon series, you've begun to do away with delineations like good emotion and bad emotion or positive emotion and negative emotion. And if you weren't here, the reason I've said that is that all emotions do two things for us. Their purpose is to do two things. One, to help us to experience the world around us. And two, to draw us into the presence of our God. The world around us is made up of both the grace and beauty of our perfect Creator God as well as the brokenness of fallen humanity. That we live in a world where sin has entered in. And so as we walk through this life, we see both birth and we see death. We see sun rises and we see sun sets. We see the beautiful skies and we see the clouds that begin to roll in. And it's right that we should experience all of those things because it's the world we live in. And it's right that in both the quote-unquote good and the quote-unquote bad emotions, 
that we would be drawn to the Lord. But in these quote-unquote bad emotions, or what our society would discover or consider as negative emotions, we tend to do something, right? And that's this. We want to get out of them. We want to fix them. We want to know how do we make these negative emotions stop. We want to know what the solution is. Right? Think of it this way. If you are suffering from an illness, what do we do? We look for relief, right? We want to know, give me something that will make it stop. It's why in the midst of allergies or sinus issues, I'll go to the pharmacy and I'll, I'll, I'll sit there and I'll stare at the medication and I'll just go through it one by one. Like, all right, this is going to help with my, my stuffiness and my congestion and it's going to help with the fever and it's going to, right? We, we want something that will cure it all, make it all go away. When we go to the, the doctor, the, the hope is that he's smarter than we will and he'll prescribe something to us that will get rid of the entire thing. But the truth is, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, right? Sometimes the medication doesn't quite work. Why? Because our bodies are complex and what's going on in our bodies is complex. Listen, our minds and our souls, just like our bodies, are complex. And so when we approach them, when we approach our emotions and experiences, it's foolish and quite honestly oftentimes harmful to just try and boil them down to a silver bullet. Right? In the Psalms, especially, the Word of God in particular in Psalm 22 tells us that it doesn't make sense to just try and boil our emotions down to a quick fix. Look at the myriad of ways that David, the psalmist, experiences and responds to his despair. First, he goes before the Lord in honest lament and complaint. Look at verses 1 to 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. David is in the midst of his desperation, willing to go to the Lord and honestly tell the Lord how he feels. Now listen, for a lot of us, especially if you've grown up in the church, this type of language tends to make us uncomfortable. God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from me? I cry to you, but you don't answer. I look to you for rest, but by night I find none of it. David is honest about what he is experience of the Lord actually looks like in this season, at this time. I, I need you to hear something. I need you to see that the Lord is not on trial here. Okay? Like, I think some of the reason that we struggle with language like this is we feel like what we're doing is placing the Lord on trial and saying to the Lord, prove yourself to me. And that's not what David is saying. 
Right? David knows that the, the name, the very name of the Lord is Yahweh, which means I am who I am. There is no shadow, there is no variation, there is no change. The Lord is who He is. And who He is is faithful, steadfast. He has proven Himself as such. So what David is doing in complaining and lamenting to the Lord is not tearing down the Lord. He's confessing that his experience of the Lord does not match up with who he knows the Lord to be. He's saying, God, you are steadfast. You have promised to be with me. So why does it feel like you've forsaken me? He says that you have availed yourself of me. You have drawn near to your people. So why does it feel like you are so far from saving me? I cry to you and you have promised to answer. But it doesn't feel like you've answered, God. Right? This, this shouldn't be an odd practice for us, and let me tell you why. Because the Lord God Himself promised that on the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the garden, that they shall surely die. And that meant both physical death as well as spiritual death. And then they were driven out of the garden from His presence which means that there is a separation between us. And so now we live, even as those who are Christ followers, who have the Spirit of Christ Jesus within us, looking at the Lord in a mirror lit dimly. We see Him now, yet not face to face. And so like David, it is right for us to go before the Lord and honestly express how we are experiencing Him. How does David deal with despair? Well, he deals with despair with lament and with complaint. And yet he also deals with despair with remembering the Lord's faithfulness. He goes on in verses uh, 3 and 4 and 5. He says, yet you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. David says of the Lord, I remember your miraculous deliverance in the past. I remember your faithfulness to all of your people. I remember how you answered their cries for help. And he doesn't just recall God's faithfulness to others. He recalls his faithfulness to him. Skip down to verse 9. He says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. He recalls the faithfulness of the Lord in his own life. How from a young age the Lord was there. How from a young age He was His God. David says, God, I need to complain to you. And he also says, I need to remember your faithfulness. But not just that, he also needs to recount and feel the depth of his situation before the Lord. Look at verses 6-8. through eight. But I am a worm. I'm not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by people. 
The people who see me, they mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their head. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Go down to verse 12. It says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring, lying. I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's, welt- it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust. Dogs encompass me. Evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. From my clothing they cast lots. Listen, if anyone ever tells you as you complain before the Lord, or maybe not even complain, if you just recount what you're actually feeling and experiencing, if they ever say to you, hey, that's, that's strong language, You're kind of going too far here, right? Like, let's not exaggerate the situation. I invite you to turn to them and just go, I will then use the words of the Bible, right? Dogs encompass me. Bulls, bulls of Bashan. It was an area northward where there was lush pastures and so that the cattle and the bulls were were huge and they were known to be mean, territorial, Ravenous lions are attacking me and overwhelming me. David doesn't pull punches. He feels utterly his situation. Now, here's what I love about this, because you know what the number one recommendation of secular therapy or self-help is when it comes to these negative emotions or spaces? Do you know what their biggest, highest goal typically is? Just don't think about it. Right? Go take a, a good vacation by the sea. Go look at the beach. Go skip some stones. Just don't think about it. And David says, no. God, look at it. He stares at the pain that he's experiencing. Right? I, I've got a couple of kids in our house, so we've got a rough and tumble family, which I love, but what that means is there's always someone bleeding. Like, right? It's just true in our household. We... we uh, have a stock of Johnson and Johnson Band-Aid, um, and it's going through the roof because of our spending, right? But because of that, and in the midst of that, we have a, we have a couple of kids who just don't like the sight of blood, and so when someone scrapes an elbow or, or gets a bump on the knee or, or a cut somewhere, they're like, "Oh, don't don't show it to me," right? And and some of us respond to these negative emotions that way. We're like, uh, "I'm just going to pretend it's not there." And it's going to go away. It'll heal on its own. And, and can I just say, it won't heal. It'll probably get infected and get worse. And I don't just mean that physically, I mean that emotionally. We are made to see the truth of what is going on and bring it before the Lord. It's at that place when we see the depths of our situation that the Lord finally gets us to the place of saying, I need help. I can't do it on my own. He complains. He remembers. He feels the depth of his situation. He goes on and then he, he worships. Right, Verse 3, he says of the Lord, Yet you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. 
Verses 22, he begins this large diatribe of worship. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you offspring. He realizes that even in the midst of his despair, even in the midst of his complaint, even in the midst of the depths of his situation, he confesses, God, you are holy. He confesses to the people that God is righteous, that he is Lord over all. He promises to fulfill the vows of his worship. Church, we need to complain. We need to lament. We need to remember. We need to worship We need to feel the depths of our situation. There's a lot going on in Psalm 22. If you're following along, and especially if you're someone who is feeling the grips of something like despair right now, it's right for you to say, hey, this doesn't feel real helpful. It feels like you've given me way too much. You haven't given me a clear path? How am I supposed to follow this? And how is this supposed to deliver me out of despair? And the answer is, I don't know that it necessarily will. And if I'm being honest, I don't know that that's what David's intent was. I mean, the psalm ends on a far more positive note than on it begins. But David doesn't tell us there's a resolution. He doesn't say that the dogs, the bulls, the lions have ceased. He doesn't say that he's no longer in trouble. He doesn't say that the Lord has answered his prayers. He doesn't say that he feels closer to the Lord at the end of this. I don't think anything that David says in Psalm 22 gives us a simple prescription of how we get out of and overcome and do away with despair. So what does it do as we see how complex our emotions and despair really is? Well, I think it does lead us to the direction of despair. Last week, if you were here with us, we walked through the experience of guilt. And in the experience of guilt, I tried to give you a pathway through guilt. In that psalm, it did feel like David was giving us a clear direction And most of us are linear thinkers, and most of us are planners, and most of us want to see 10 steps ahead of where we're going, and we like that. I don't think that's wrong. It tends to give us comfort and confidence when we see the path ahead of us. But oftentimes, what the Lord gives to us, what we see in Scripture, it just doesn't look like that. A few years ago, I, I, I grabbed my Bible and started doing sermon prep, and I, I flipped to the front page, and I saw that my son, Sam, had, had drawn in my Bible. And uh, like a really godly man, I was immediately uh, annoyed. But then I, I sat there, and I'm looking at this drawing that he made, and it occurred to me that this drawing felt a lot like my life. Right, this is, uh, this is the, the drawing of, of Sam, right? It's abstract. I'm sure that there's an entire story he could tell you about that drawing. 
Here, here's what I love about this drawing is this is what most of us experience in the Christian life. Right? If you look up, you can even Google this when you get home, take a mental snapshot of this picture. If you look up what the journey through the wilderness for Israel looked like, I'm pretty sure it looked like this. Right? Like this is what we experience in life. It feels like there's twists and turns, and most of the time we don't understand where we're going or why we are going. Psalm 22 feels the same way. When I tried to map out this psalm for like a linear flow through it, I put these brackets around all the things that David was doing. And if you even noticed, as we read through it, we jumped all over the place. Because it feels like David is all over the place. The complexity of his emotions leads him in various directions. He seems to be wandering through what looks like a maze. Varying turns of complaint and trust and truth and hurt and worship and then back again. But while David's feet are turning every which way, his head and his heart are actually always in the same direction. They're always pointed up. The direction of despair is always meant to be aimed at the Lord. All right, we've talked about this again and again through this sermon series. Our emotions are meant to lead us to the Lord. Our experiences are meant to lead us to the Lord. Our circumstances are meant to lead us to the Lord. This time together is meant to lead us to the Lord. This is meant to lead us to the Lord. There's a, a term, a Latin term, that the church fathers use called Coram Deo or Coram Dei. It, it literally means Coram, before, Dei, God, before God, before the face of God. This uh, psalm, I think, describes it perfectly. Here's what Coram Dei is. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in. You go behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. But where shall I go from your spirit or flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark for you. The night is dark as the day, for darkness is as light with you. He's always there. We are always before him. Quorum Dei means the people of God live life before the face of God, in his presence, in relationship with him, under his authority and to his glory. This is the most important thing about your life. Like, I, I need you to hear that. Your obedience serves the purpose of you living before the face of God. Christ Jesus came to forgive your sins so that you might dwell in all eternity before the face of 
God. Prayer gets you before the face of God. Scripture helps you to be before the face of God. Look again at David's responses in despair. Lament and complaining. He laments and complains to who? The Lord. He remembers what? The Lord's faithfulness. He processes the depths of his feelings about his situation before the Lord. He makes requests to the Lord. He worships the Lord. The direction of despair. The direction of helplessness. The direction of all of these emotions and experiences that we oftentimes want to get ourselves out of. The direction is toward the Lord. So what does that mean that our direction is towards the Lord and how does that help? That leads us to the context of despair. Scholars have long debated what circumstance David was in when he wrote this psalm. As you walk back through his kingship, it doesn't feel like there's a lot that fit this perfectly. As a matter of fact, if you closed your eyes and just read this passage without knowing who wrote it or what it was about, you'd probably quickly have the story of another sufferer come to mind. Let me read just a couple bits and see if these words stir anything in you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am scorned and despised by men. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. They have pierced my hands and they have pierced my feet. Psalm 22 certainly seems to point to another sufferer, another king, a better David, who seemed to have all hope taken from him. Christ Jesus was despised and rejected by man. He declared that his blood would be poured out like water for our salvation, his bones, his bodies broken for us. Even his resurrected body still bore the scars where he was pierced in his hands and his feet. And on the cross, before the wrath of God being poured out on him, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus came to earth. But the New Testament and all of Scripture makes clear that the Old Testament points to Jesus. That David himself, as a psalmist, was a prophet, an arrow, pointing his people towards the better King, the Christ that would come. And so the context of our despair is one that it takes place within the larger story of redemption, and two, in light of Jesus' suffering and despair. It takes place in the midst of the story of redemption. David could have never fathomed that one day the Messiah would use his very words to describe his own despair. 
Somehow, in the midst of David's suffering, his words were a part of the great story of redemption, the healing of the world, and the coming of Christ. We know that. But we also know that that's true for all of us. That our suffering is used by the Lord. That He might unite us to other people. That we might testify to the goodness and grace and sufficiency of the Lord to those around us. That it might create empathy and relationship and bond even in the midst of our own trials. These negative emotions, they tend to narrow us to close us in, and David is saying, don't do that. Instead, see that even your despair is a part of something so much bigger. Don't hide yourself from the people of God. Don't pull yourself in. He intends for you to draw comfort and for others to find hope, even in the midst of your despair. David's despair was in the context of the greater story of redemption, and so is ours. And David's despair also, and ours even more so, takes place in light of Jesus' despair. If despair is the loss of hope, then in Christ Jesus, we have hope restored. Now, why do I say that? Think of this for a second. Jesus, the one who had perfect faith, who knew the Father perfectly, perfectly lived before the face of God. What was he doing in the midst of the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweat drops of blood? He despaired. What was he doing upon the cross as he cried out and actually fulfilled the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was despairing. Because he actually did lose hope. He actually did lose the favor of the Father. He actually did lose the presence of the Lord as he hung upon the cross bearing our sin. Despair occurs when we see the brokenness of the world around us and we believe that all hope is lost, but because Jesus was rejected, because He was torn from the Father, because He lost hope, we never will. At least not actually. It might feel like you lose hope. It might feel like things won't get better. It might feel like even your faith is slipping away from you. But even when we feel like we're on shaky ground, we are actually on the rock of Christ. Even when we feel like the Father's presence is gone, He is actually always with us. And even when we feel like our enemies will overtake us, we already stand victorious. The world still rages. Hurts still occur. Isolation still feels close. Despair still tends to cling to us. But at the end of it, Jesus really has come. He really has succeeded 
He has suffered for us. He has defeated sin and death. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He is promising to come again. So what do we do with moments of despair? Even knowing that our despair and our emotions are complex, even knowing that the direction of our despair is meant to point us to the Lord, even knowing that the context of our despair is that it takes place after the victory of Christ for us. As I was praying this morning and just asking the Lord how He wanted to leave you, He brought to mind a story I read several years ago about two older saints. They had served in ministry all of their life, this husband and wife. They had cared for people. They had proclaimed the gospel. They had pointed people to Jesus. And towards the end of their life, the wife became ill and she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And one day, a a journalist came to to interview the two of them just to, to recap a lifetime of faithful ministry and following the Lord. And in the midst of the, the interview, the, the wife got up and she excused herself, and the husband told the interviewer she, she, she needs to go take a nap. Her strength is just diminishing and diminishing. And he said, how is she doing with Alzheimer's? And the husband took a moment and kind of composed himself, and he said, she's doing well, But she says the same thing to me over and over again, that she is so desperately scared of forgetting Jesus. And he paused, and he said to her, the only thing that I can reply to her is that it doesn't matter whether you remember Jesus. It just matters if he remembers you. Church, the hope that we have in the midst of despair is not that you and I are going to muster our way out of it. Not that we're going to chart a course and sail our way out of the storm. The hope is that even when we feel like hope is lost, there is a greater hope in Christ Jesus that will never leave or forsake us. Even if it feels like you have fallen too far, that you are too helpless, that you cannot get up and even turn your eyes again to the goodness of the Lord. No, church. Your position is secure. Your place is secure. Your strength is secure and your faith is secure, not in you, but in the hope and the person of Christ Jesus. Pray with me.